you know, uh, I was just praying about what to uh, share with you, and uh, it's not a spooky thing, but, you know, uh, the Lord just quickened to me and made an impression, and I asked Pastor Dan, uh, I said, you know, and I haven't taught on this for uh, 15 years, but, um, and I'll explain how that came about, but I thought I'd share some things concerning spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and he told me you just read through that. So, huh? Yeah, week before last in the, is it the Immerse or Immersion? Immerse Bible. Okay, and uh, that has uh, a connection because one of the things you've noticed, isn't it different reading it without chapter and verse numbers? You know, you know that the Bible is not given to us a verse at a time or a chapter at a time. It was given to us a book at a time. And uh, does anyone know how long our Bibles did not have chapter divisions? I know you know, Dan. Okay. The first, anyone know? 1,500 years about. Yeah, the Geneva Bible was the first one. And uh, the chapter divisions were not even done by a committee of scholars. It was by one guy. Anyone know who he was? Bishop Langton. He was a circuit-riding bishop who took care of a multiple, you know, circuit riders used to take care of multiple congregations. And I am, and if you can imagine trying to keep your place, especially in the Apostle Paul's epistles, riding on a horse with no numbers, trying to keep your place, you understand why he did that. But I am certain some of the chapter divisions are only where they are because Bishop Langton's horse stepped in a hole at that particular point in his reading. The two most obvious being in, if you would say, what are the most famous chapters, what two chapters come to you, the what chapter and the what chapter? The love chapter and the faith chapter, right? And you know that neither of them were intended to be chapters. They're just in the middle of another teaching, okay? And let's focus on the love chapter, and I'm not going to argue with it. I understand why people get it, but I want you to notice something, what comes immediately before this passage of Scripture. I copied and pasted it in here for me. No, I didn't copy and paste it. And see, you know what happens, because I've got 11 translations in here, and I'll have a thought, and right during the service, I'll start studying, and then it. I lost my place. Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. And you know, it starts off, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but back up. And I show you a still more excellent way. That's what leads into it, okay? Now, and I have heard when... uh, there's an utterance given or tongues and interpretation. And I've heard many pastors say, as they explain that for non-Pentecostal visitors, you'll find teaching on this in, and they'll say this, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. And I just want them to change one word, 12 through 14. Because, you see, chapter 13 is smack dab in the middle of Paul's teaching concerning spiritual gifts. It is critical 
to understanding spiritual gifts. And that's what I want to share with you a bit tonight. Um, and by the way, um, I had the reason I was, I did this study 15 years ago on spiritual gifts is because uh, a pastor had recently been elected to a very large church, and the church was a church I had preached in many, many times. And in between pastors, they had about two and a half years. And so there were some people who had exercised some gifts, gotten a little out of hand when there was no pastor to kind of rein them in. So he called me up and said, Randy, I don't want to take the bullets on this. He said, these people know you. I'd like you to come. And so I went for four weeks, flew in four times to teach on spiritual gifts. And uh, you do understand that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. And so not everything, and I could give you a raft of these, but let's start it off. Maybe it'll lighten it up a little bit. You know, not every utterance is from the Lord. Uh, recently, in an Assemblies of God church, I won't name the state, this actually happened. It was during the Christmas season, the pastor was just ripping on Santa Claus. Santa Claus didn't give his life for your sins, and just going after Santa Claus, you know. And um, <laughs> this lady got up and gave a message in tongues and interpreted her message and said, Thus saith the Lord, lay off Santa Claus. He's a good man, and he's doing a good job. Well, I'm sympathetic to her. I don't. But how many know that probably shouldn't have disrupted that service? I could tell you more, but I won't. You want one more? Oh, my favorite. Des would like this. It happened in England in the year 2000, and actually, it was Des' cousin who told me this, Andrew Evans, yeah. And so we saw each other in Indianapolis, this big thing. And he said, Randy, I just came from England. And he said, I have to tell you this. He said, I went to this, it wasn't an Assemblies of God church, it was an Elam church. You know, they're very similar to Assemblies of God. And he said, they had had their annual church picnic on Saturday, and Andrew Evans was there Sunday morning. And after the worship, this lady gave a message, and she said, my little children, I've really enjoyed your worship together. I enjoyed the picnic yesterday too. I haven't had that much fun since the wedding in Cana of Galilee. You know, well, anyway. Now, it was because of that kind of thing. Those are true stories, folks. It was because of that kind of thing that this pastor asked me to do and this series, and I did an extensive study on it. And, and you know, really, and pastor will tell you this, uh, one of the greatest challenges, in some ways the greatest challenge in doing an exposition of the word, uh, I, I have taught some on preaching and I talk about six things I do for every message, starting with exposition. You start with the word. Exposition, organization, simplification, illustration, application, invitation. But of those, the most challenging for me and I think for most is simplification. My pastor excels at simplification. And so what I'm going to try to do is simplify 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And uh, thinking simple is not as simple as you think. And uh, it took quite a while before this structure came to me. And when I've taught uh, preachers concerning preaching, 
of an organization, after exposition, an organization, I say search for the divinely inspired structure of the text. Because very often there is a structure that God inspired into that text in the way that it is organized. Now, I want to, uh, first of all, yes? Oh, my word. And I'm meeting with them tomorrow. I could give them that. Okay. Exposition. What's the word saying? Okay. Exposition, organization, which is like coming up with your outline. Simplification. And sometimes that needs to come before the organization. Okay. Simplification. Illustration. That's the stories you use, the windows. And interestingly, most people remember the illustrations more than they do anything else. All right, they really do. Okay, illustration, application. Now, you see, exposition, you want to say, what did the text, what did it mean then? What did the text say? And application is, what is it saying today? Because there is an application for today that specifically you can take out of something 2,000 or 3,000 years ago, but then you apply it for today. An invitation and this, I've, I find, I think, most preachers probably, I don't want to say most, but a lot, do not give attention to that in their study. I will tell you at the, at the conclusion of every, there are only two kinds of people out there, believers and non-believers. And I believe we should have a challenge to each. At the, the end of the message this morning, there were several responded. I had a challenge to non-believers, and there were several respondents, but I also had a challenge to believers. So invitation, when you're preparing the message, you say, to what decision am I going to challenge non-believers, and to what decision am I going to challenge believers? And the easy one is the non-believers, because you know what you're challenging them to. Anyway, okay, so that's a little digression. Do I get an extra four minutes because you interrupted me? Okay. I'm, I'm going to read through what we call as the love chapter. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, it is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy... They will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. Now let's stop and interrupt there. Do you know that's where cessationism comes from? Because what those who don't believe, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and those things are that were for the New Testament church are not for today, use this. They say tongues, they will cease. That's not talking about after the New Testament church. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. Okay, see, if you say the tongue ceased, what happened to knowledge? 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three but the greatest of these is love. Now there are those, especially cessationists, non-Pentecostals, and more specifically, anti-Pentecostals, who use this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 to denigrate spiritual gifts. And they say, see, Paul is trying to say, because we do know the church of Corinth was enamored with spiritual gifts. That's part of the context, a major part of the writing of the context for the writing of this epistle. But I want you to notice how he ends chapter, although it wasn't a chapter to him, 12, and how he begins chapter 14. Okay, so let's look again at that passage. And we already quoted the end of chapter 12. He said, I show to you a more, more excellent way. Paul is not denigrating spiritual gifts. He's saying spiritual gifts are excellent. Just love is more excellent. Hello? There's no negativity there. All right? And I'll come back again to chapter 13. Then go to the beginning of chapter 14. After he says the greatest of these is love, let's pretend Bishop Langton's horse didn't step in a hole here. And you go like in your immersed Bible, go straight through. Here's what he says. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Now why, if he was denigrating spiritual gifts, would he right after he gives the love chapter say, desire earnestly these spiritual gifts? You see, gifts are excellent. Love is more excellent. Now, I want to come back, and I'll, I'll share with you. We don't have time to go through all three chapters, but I'm going to share with you, and I sent this to them, and boy, they are on the spot here and get a PowerPoint. So I will tell you, the first half or so of chapter 12 talks about the power of the gifts. I think they'll put that up. The power of the gifts, all right? This is my simplification that he made me give you the list for, okay? And the organization and simplification go together. And there are two characteristics, two things that make the gifts powerful. One is in their unity, and the other is in their variety. Both of those are critical. And so in the first part of that, he's talking about the power of the spiritual gifts in their unity and in their variety. Now go to the next uh, point on the PowerPoint, and you'll see this is talking about the last half of that chapter before getting into what people call the love chapter. He's talking about the placement of the gifts. And this is something that is very important, and you'll find that it'll connect again when, in the beginning of chapter 14, he says, pursue love but desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Notice he does not say pursue spiritual gifts. 
He says, earnestly desire them. Why? And this is very important, friends. You know that Paul mentioned that there was a gift in Timothy by the laying on of his hands? Do you know that God imparts in the body? And by the way, it's a, it's a lost doctrine. You know, it's referred to in the New Testament, but we don't have the actual doctrine of the laying on of hands, but it is referred to. There was a teaching concerning laying on of hands. You know, it's a mystery, friends, but you know what? We lay hands on one another. It's nothing spooky. It's an expression of our faith. In the same way, I think I alluded to this this morning, that those sincere Christians in the book of Acts swiped Paul's aprons that he used when he was making tents and took them and put them on sick people and the sick people were healed. That is not an ordinance of the church. Let me give you the exposition of that now, okay? The exposition of that is, that's mentioned one time. It's not like communion, which we celebrate it. By the way, can I give you a little side on communion? I think, when I'm having communion, I think of other countries, you know? And uh, in France, it's not called communion. It's called a saint saint the holy scene. It's talking about a holy, a sacred scene, all right, but my favorite one is the place where I was a missionary. The Psalm 1 word, we call it communion. Now, isn't that kind of connected like a commune? A communion is a coming together that's kind of similar to the French saying a holy scene. But your pastor nailed it. He said what this is about. This is first and foremost not about our coming together. It is first and foremost about remembrance. Jesus said, do this so you have an excuse to get together. No, do this in remembrance. And I love the Samoan word for the communion service. It's fa'amanatunga. Isn't that brilliant? Let me break it down for you. Manatunga is memory. Fa'a means to cause or create. Literally, the communion service of the Samoan is the creation of a memory. You see, we were not at that Last Supper. And my son Russ just said this yesterday. We were talking about communion on the phone for some reason. And he said, Dad, whenever I take the bread, I think of it. That Jesus broke it, started to multiply it, broke it, and it's been being broken and broken and broken ever since all over the world by millions of people. He started it in that one room. And we're still doing it. Why do we do that? Why the bread? Why the wine? The Samoans say to create a memory. Because you see, we weren't there firsthand. So the bread and the wine become the means of creating a memory for us of an event we did not personally witness. Isn't that beautiful? Anyway, back to 1 Corinthians. My brother calls me the king of digression. Anyway, uh, so we're talking about placement. And I, I will tell you that I went to, on behalf of the Assemblies of God, God does, I was talking about the doctrine of laying on of hands. You know, we practice it. It's mentioned in Scripture. It's, it's clearly a biblical practice. It's not a, a, a spooky thing. It's not a mysterious thing. It's a point of contact and an expression of our faith. There are prayers for this person that God, do I think there's something 
physically happening. I can't say that. I can say that God is honoring our faith like he honored the faith of those that took Paul's aprons and, and did that, you see? So, so the, uh, the laying on of hands. But here's the thing, the placement of the gifts. The gifts are not, the reason he says later in chapter 14, pursue love, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, is we are only to desire the gifts because God chooses upon whom and which ones he places. It is by the will of God. You don't seek after a spiritual gift. You don't pursue a spiritual gift. You desire it, but it is a sovereign choice of God. And friends, when, when we see that, I will tell you, we need to understand that God has sovereignly placed things in the body. How many think if God's decided to do it, it's pretty important? If God has placed these gifts in the body, then we should be exercising them, utilizing them for the sake of the body. Now I'm going to get out from behind the pulpit because my wife says, don't preach your opinions. See, I personally believe, I, I know for a fact that there are people I'll give you an example. There's a friend of mine, I, I could give several people I could name for you, that have, I believe it's a gift of faith for people to experience Holy Spirit baptism. I can't explain it, but there are certain people, isn't that right, Dan? They, and, and I have a pastor friend who said when he's praying for someone for the baptism and they're not getting anywhere, he calls his wife. And Judy comes, lays her hands on, and wham, the person... I, Hello? Now, I don't think Judy has the gift of imparting the baptism. But I believe she has a gift of faith to which God responds. It's a mystery. You know what I believe? I believe we'd all, we ought to all be earnestly desiring spiritual gifts for the benefit of the body. We need people. I will tell you, God has given me faith, and I never say publicly what it's about. I don't know why. He granted me faith for this certain thing. And every single time someone comes to me for prayer for that, except once, the Lord has responded to that. And there's another thing that happened to me that when God granted this for me, it gave me faith for others, and I found when I pray for others, for that thing God did for me, I have faith, and God answers that faith. You know what I believe? I think we need a church full of people who have faith for all kinds of things. To pray. People who have faith for cancer. People who have faith for orthopedic problems. I just believe that, friends. That's what God wants to do in the gifts. But he's the one who places them. Don't go to some special guy. Hey, pray for this gift for me. Okay, then we come to chapter 13. And I'll go ahead and put that up, but I'm going to come back to it, okay, because we're going to focus on that primarily. What is chapter 13 about? It's about the perspective on the gifts. Now, you know what perspective is? If you got things out of perspective, you got it lopsided, do you know what I'm saying? You don't have a right perspective on it. Now, I know that doesn't excite you when I say 1 Corinthians 13 is about perspective, but I'll come back there, all right? Let's go on to chapter 14. What's the next point? Number four, the purpose of the gifts. Do you know the purpose of the gifts? is very simple. It's to edify. 
it builds up the person God is using, and it builds up the body. How many think the church needs to be built? It's Jesus didn't say, I'm going to establish that church back in when was it put on, was Bethesda established here? You know, God's not done with this. Hello? He is still building his church at Bethesda Community Church, right? And so, listen, the gifts are to edify and build the church, all right? Okay, then let's go to the last one, the propriety of the gifts. And this is where I got to ask you, how many have been in Pentecost more than 30 years? Okay, then you'll get this, okay? Pastors were accused if someone burst out with an utterance in the middle of the pastor's message, and he would say, you know, my brother or my sister, would you hold that until the end? And someone said, ooh, pastor was quenching the spirit. No, pastor was exercising a spiritual gift, a gift of administration, of leadership. Hello? Are you with me? In fact, this may surprise some people. I actually said this at Central Bible College many years ago. I had a professor came to me and said, I've never heard anyone say that, but I think you're right. And, and I'm going to use a word, a very unspiritual word, okay? And what I said in that chapel service was, I said, you know, when someone speaks out in an utterance, at an inappropriate time, and the pastor is saying, hold that until later. The pastor telling the person to stop is a manifestation of the Spirit itself. Are you with me? That is exercising ruling or, or, or leadership or administrations, sometimes it's called, all right? And by its nature... But the pastor's manifestation trumps the other person's manifestation. Hello? I told you it wasn't spiritual. And I wasn't talking about the president when I said trumps. How many know what trumps is about? Yeah. Well, we couldn't play cards when I was growing up either. So, you know, I brought that in there. But you know what? Trump is a good explanation. In other words, it takes precedence over that. So we need propriety in the gifts. Why? Because Paul says, let all things be done decently and in order. Listen, we don't want people coming to church and running scared out of the church because somebody out of order, and by the way, my father regularly was manifested the gift of, uh, of prophecy, and I asked him shortly before he died, it was just a few months before he died, and I said, Dad, you know, I've noticed that at, at, in church, at Central Assembly, when you prophesy, when does that just come on you all of a sudden? And he surprised me. He said, you know, most of the time, that word comes to me before I even get to church. Sometimes I'm shaving. Hello? Did you know that God actually prepares too? Everything isn't just impulse. Hello? Propriety of the gifts. Now, okay, I, I really gave you that, but I want to focus back in on the perspective of the gifts in 1 Corinthians 13. Okay? 1 Corinthians 13 particularly is what's called a polemic, which is a very strong argument. And let me summarize and simplify Paul's polemic in 1 Corinthians 13. 
As I've already said, he is not denigrating spiritual gifts. He's saying they're excellent. But here's the first point. There are two major points he makes in 1 Corinthians 13. And here's number one. Number one is, as great as spiritual gifts are, love is greater. That's his first argument. His second argument is even stronger. He's saying, as great as spiritual gifts are, are without love they are useless now that is a pretty powerful argument wouldn't you say doesn't that tell you why love is so important may i tell you friends it has been distressing to my spirit spirit progressively over recent months in our nation i i cannot watch the news do I? Yes. A little bit here and there. I get so distressed at the hostility, at the hatred. Our nation is being ripped apart by hatred. And the church needs to shine and demonstrate what love is. The power of love. It's used so frivolously in our culture. I'm going to tack a little something on here. Now remember, please remember that I said spiritual gifts are great and excellent. Would you raise your hand and say, you remember I said that? Because I want to give you four, four problems with spiritual gifts that give you perspective on the perspective of the love that gives perspective on the spiritual gifts. All right? And I got them Boy, I send it to Pastor Dan. Isn't it great technology? I'm bang, bang, bang. And boy, they've got it already. Number one. What does it say? Inflating. Sorry, there's a problem with spiritual gifts. When God in his grace and mercy uses people, it can inflate their ego. I'm not hearing any amens, but I'm seeing a few nods. Hello? Are you with me? Do you know what? Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't inflate your ego because love's not about you. Hello? Let me give you a second weakness of spiritual gifts. Intimidating. You see, if I'm being used in a spiritual gift, I may not be inflated. It may not have affected my ego but by the very nature of the fact that God is using me and, it's not, and is not using someone else, it can be intimidating to someone else to see God using another person and they can feel I'm not important. Are you with me? Let me see your hands. I can't tell by your faces. Is it true? Spiritual gifts are inflating, they are intimidating, and they are intermittent. Remember we talked about placement of the gifts? Also the manifestation of the gifts is when the Spirit moves on people to manifest, right? Which means it's not 24-7. It's not all the time. It happens when God chooses to do it. I used to hear this argument, didn't you, Dan? Oh, you know, I believe every time the church comes together, all of the gifts ought to be manifested in every service. Nonsense. Do you remember that argument? And the point is, God knows when we need what gift. 
Let's just be open, ready, seeking, waiting on God. And when God does it, wonderful. And he gets the glory and the body is built up. But it is, they are intermittent. They don't, but you know what? Love is not intermittent. You know, I talk to Ruth every day. I talk to my sons every day. And one thing I love about my son, Russ, he never hangs up the phone without saying, love you, dad. Love you, Dad. Love you, Dad. You think I ever, that ever gets old to me? Hello? And when my sweetheart says to me and I say to her, love you, love you, we always t- are expressing love every single phone conversation. You know why? Because love is not intermittent. Love is. And lastly, spiritual gifts are isolated. Now, what do you mean by isolated? They are isolated from the fruit of the Spirit. They're not necessarily connected. Hello? Do you know there are people who are used in spiritual gifts that are real jerks? How many have been in Pentecost long enough to testify Hurst is telling the truth? Hello? You know what? They're not connected. In fact, I was at a pastor's meeting, um, and, and we were sitting around tables discussing things, and one, one young pastor was talking about initial evidence and so forth, and, and uh, he was talking about initial evidence of baptism, the Holy Spirit, whatever. And I forget the question he asked. And I said, uh, well, I got a question for you to this pastor. I said, can you explain to me why my Southern Baptist secretary manifests more of the fruit of the Spirit than 95% of the ordained Assemblies of God ministers I know, including myself. He said, are you serious? I said, of course I'm serious. He said, you're really serious? I said, I'm really serious. I wish you could meet Missy Montgomery. She has never spoken in tongues. And she is loving, joyful, at peace. The whole fruit of the Spirit's manifest. Excuse me, is this rattling anyone's cage? (laughs) Tragically, a few years ago, Missy died of cancer. Do you know, she came to our office. She never did get the baptism. She believed in it. She was ready for it. She was wanting it. And, and there was just some, you know how long it took me to hire Missy? I shook her hand, and I mean in five seconds, she had the joy of the Lord on her face. I said, I'm going to hire this lady. And I don't know why the Lord called her home. I can tell you I'm totally sincere when I tell you that that Southern Baptist girl so manifested the fruit of the Spirit. And I have seen tongue-talking, prophesying Go down the list of some of the God people who are mean and nasty and gossips. How many are getting disillusioned now? Boy, what a pastor thinking asking him to do this? <laughs> it's the truth, friends. Spiritual gifts are isolated from the fruit. I would add something to what Paul says. He says, pursue. Listen to what he said. He doesn't talk about pursuing the gifts. He talks about pursuing Love, the fruit, pursue it. Do you know what? It is totally legitimate to pursue love. 
I said something to Pastor Michael just not long ago, or maybe it was Dan. There's, there's a lady at the National Office of Headquarters. Our new general secretary is a woman, by the way. All right? She has just the joy of the Lord. She has the glow of the Lord on her face. She's just got it. And she comes and sits next to me in chapel because we both sit on the, on the front row. And I looked at her in chapel last week, and I was looking at that glowing, smiling face. And I was saying, I said, God, give me a little bit of Donna's glow. I want to smile like that. Do you know why it makes an impact? Do you know that your very countenance can make an impact on non-believers and on the world around you? The joy of the Lord is palpable. And it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. So as I say, the gifts are isolated from the fruit. Now, Remind you, didn't I say they're good? great? Didn't I say they're excellent? Spiritual gifts are great. Spiritual gifts are excellent. But listen to what 1 Corinthians 13, the perspective that what we call the love chapter brings to spiritual gifts is two things. As great as spiritual gifts are, love is greater. And even more dramatically, as great as spiritual gifts are, without love, they're useless. I, I was praying for whoever those people were when Pastor Michael was, those people that are involved in ministering to people that are being set free from homosexuality. When I was on this trip in December, I learned that a friend of mine wanted to be with the Lord last year, and I hadn't known it, and I was with his sister. He, he was a Samoan. And I was a friend with him for years before, before the day that at Orson's Chowder House, when we were having lunch together, he blurted it out and told me that he was gay. And I wanted to faint. And you know what? The Lord, I won't take the time to go into it. The Lord gave me wisdom and grace in what I said to my friend. And I told him, I said, I, I bet you don't want to change, do you? And he said, no, I don't. I said, do you know that God can't change you if you don't want to be changed? I said, so let me tell you how I'm going to pray. I'm not going to pray for God to change you. I'm going to pray for God to show you somehow to bring about something in your life to reveal to you the destructive end of this lifestyle that you have chosen. And once you see that, and you want to change, God can change you. And I had the privilege of two years later sitting down lunch again with him and him telling me, I've left the lifestyle. I'm still battling with temptation. But he said, I've left it. And you know what? He, di he didn't die of AIDS. He didn't die of a homosexually transmitted disease. Died of a heart condition. But he died in victory. Let me tell you something, folks. I believe no one has more hope for those bound in homosexuality than Pentecostals do. Let me tell you why. As a repulsive as a sin it is, it is to us straight people. It is according to Scripture. It is a work of the flesh. And the only thing that can overpower the flesh is the Holy Spirit of God. We know where the victory will come for these people. I believe the truth of God's word that you're reading has the answers for our nation. 
that is wandering and corrupted. But may I tell you, the world's not going to listen to us unless we demonstrate the love that this chapter is talking about. <laughs> Friends, it's that important. I don't have time to tell you closing illustration. I just, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in prayer. And I don't know why I felt impressed to speak on spiritual gifts. Haven't done it in 15 years. But as you're reading through the word, and you've already read through this passage, this passage said to you, desire earnestly spiritual gifts. I'm going to ask you to obey that scripture by lifting your hands and say, Jesus, I earnestly desire you to use me for the upbuilding of the body, for the reaching of the lost. I can't do it in my own ability. I desire spiritual gifts, not so I'll be inflated, not so I'll be intimidating, but so I'll be productive. We desire spiritual gifts, Lord. But with this perspective, oh God, may the love of God be shed abroad in our hearts by the power of the Holy Ghost. Because Paul was right. As great as spiritual gifts are, love's greater. And as great as spiritual gifts are, without love, they're useless. Lord, I know that Bethesda is known as a church of great music and worship. I've never seen better anywhere in this country, wherever I've been. And Lord, it has been characterized always by great preaching. I don't know who was here before Des Evans, but all of these years, God, you put Des and Dan in the pulpit and others that are part of the team. And, and there's powerful ministry of the word, eloquent ministry of the word here. But Lord, Bethesda is just one church of hundreds in the Metroplex area. I pray with the perspective of this chapter that even more than Bethesda being known for great worship and music and preaching. That Bethesda will be known for great love. Because God, there's so many people out there that need it. I thank you, Lord, that you put in my heart a love that when he told me he was gay, it never disrupted our friendship. I kept loving him and praying for him. I was able to see him come through to victory. God, help us to love people. And may it begin within the body. By this, Jesus, you said, would all men know we were your true followers if we had love one for another. May people come into Bethesda and just see the love between the people here. Lord, I just pray that 
you actualize in people's lives tonight and in this great church. Paul's teaching in these three chapters. Thank you for what you're going to do.